From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. The epidemiology of infectious disease is closely tied to public health efforts, resources, and access to care. The HIV epidemic forced countries in sub-Saharan Africa to build public health infrastructure that could prevent and treat the disease. Now that people with HIV are living longer, how can these same systems prevent and treat other chronic diseases? And how does HIV complicate treatment? In South Africa, Mark Seidner and his team are working with local health departments and healthcare providers to understand the best ways to treat hypertension and other chronic diseases in people living with HIV. Dr. Mark Seidner is an infectious disease clinician at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Seidner, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to Think Research. Thank you, my pleasure. So you're a clinical epidemiologist by training, and you have a research program in Uganda and South Africa that aims to improve health for people living with HIV. When did you become interested in HIV? You know, I think like many people in my field, it was really a personal experience, which I think first got me interested in the field in general. Uh, As a youngster, uh, I had a cousin who was infected with HIV. He was actually also a magician. So he was my favorite cousin, uh, <laughs> no offense to all the rest of my cousins, uh, but he was infected with the disease at a time when treatments weren't yet available. Uh, he did unfortunately succumb to the disease. And actually, I think uh, other than you know losing a, a family member uh, and friend, uh, I think I was young at the time, but striking um, was the fact that people didn't really talk about his death in my family. It, it wasn't a secret, but it wasn't discussed. And I I remember some conversations with my mother about why that might be and not really understanding it. But as I, of course, grew and expanded my ability to really conceptualize those, those things, it became increasingly an interest to me, not just HIV as a, as a medical disease, but as a, a stigmatizing disease and one that affected people on multiple levels and uh, slowly per- pursued a path through, through my education to, to see if I can learn more about it. And um, I actually took me on a trip after college um, as part of a research fellowship to spend a year largely in sub-Saharan Africa doing some independent study. Uh, and I chose to study the effect of the HIV epidemic on various social and behavioral responses in, in countries in sub-Saharan Africa and India. Uh, and after that, it was pretty much clinched that I wanted to spend the rest of my life trying to learn more about it and being able to co- come back at a point in my life when I had the skill set to potentially have a greater impact. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's such an interesting story that your family experience and the death of your cousin really propelled you into medicine and, um, and your career, your life's work, I guess. Yeah, I think many of us in medicine and science, I think we'll have a personal experience at some point that really triggers either our curiosity or our dedication to try to be able to return and make a contribution. And for me, I think that was really the first of those experiences. And then many others uh, throughout my life, especially when I got a chance, um, I think, to spend some time globally and see 
how the HIV epidemic had really just destroyed a generation of people. Uh, I, I was pretty much convinced at that point that I, I wanted to learn skills that would allow me to come, somehow come back and make a contribution in response. So mm. it was the first of, of many experiences, but I think they certainly led me on that path. And so you said that your your sort of interest in sub-Saharan Africa started with a trip after college and you were um, fortunate to be able to come back and continue and work there. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the research program that you have now and uh, what some of the goals are. I think one of the greatest privileges of being a physician scientist uh, is that you're, you're offered an opportunity not just to care for people as a clinician, but really to learn from the greatest challenges that people face both as patients and, and as humans. And uh, I had the opportunity uh, through my work at Massachusetts General Hospital um, to spend time living in Uganda and then later in South Africa and learn, you know, by practice of medicine, what were the greatest challenges to patients' lives and to the delivery of healthcare. And I'd like, you know, to say that most of my research and most of our research questions are not ones that I think I really developed myself, but ones that my patients asked me or our colleagues in the clinics asked me, and we didn't have an answer to. And so to give an example, most, our work is largely revolves around answering questions that say, how can we do better by our patients? How can we allow people with HIV, which is a chronic disease, to live healthier, longer lives? And, and so, for example, in Uganda, uh, two of our current projects involve studying how HIV uh, affects the heart. Uh, and that's because uh, we increasingly have seen uh, over the last 20 years, um, which is a you know, in some ways, a very good thing that people are no longer dying of AIDS at such high numbers, that they're living uh, with the disease, which is a chronic disease, but suffering consequences of its treatment or suffering consequences of a chronic infection that's actually well controlled with the medicines we have. And so the priorities are shifting in our patients from, you know, dying of AIDS uh, to after delivery of treatment, um, living with AIDS. And so we're trying to understand how do people live long, healthy lives with HIV, with the chronic disease, whether that pertains to their heart health or other factors, things like their, their priorities as they age, uh, what determines their, their social life, what determines whether they're able to, uh, you know, accomplish their activities of daily living. And those are, those are the primary focuses that we've shifted to over the last five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned the challenges of healthcare delivery in these countries. Um, what are some of those challenges? Um, I know that, you know, sometimes there are long distances, people have to travel and, um, but what specifically about HIV and heart health, what are some challenges that you face? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, uh, you know, healthcare systems and healthcare delivery models in low-income countries differ greatly uh, from, from many high-income countries. And we won't spend time talking about the challenges of healthcare delivery in the United States, which I think is quite unique. But in many of these countries, you know, public spending on healthcare is just a few percent of GDP, uh, you know, a fraction of what it is here in the United States. And so the actual public health infrastructure, the way healthcare is delivered is, is incredibly different there in terms of what you know, facilities have to offer, what, what patients can expect to receive uh, at the hospital in terms of care, what they have to pay for themselves, what they can afford to pay for. And so the HIV epidemic, very interestingly, in some ways, reinvented that system because for the first time, there was a large investment 
uh, in a public health care system in some of these countries that just really hadn't existed in the past. And so what HIV afforded, you know, the healthcare system do is say, how do we actually, now that we have some resources, which were, were paid for uh, through, largely through global donations and, and sometimes through partnerships with these countries, how do we now set up a, health, a public healthcare system uh, and allow people to have access to chronic care? And that, that really revolutionized the way treatment was given from largely from people coming to clinic only when they felt sick, uh, maybe to get treated for malaria or for childbirth or for other acute problems, to coming to clinic as a way of, of sustaining health and, and preventing disease. The successes there have been many. You know, many millions of people's lives have been saved uh, due to HIV, due to tuberculosis, and due to other conditions related to HIV. But what we're left with is a healthcare system in some ways that is only designed to take care of HIV, because that's how mm -hmm. the systems were built and not so well designed yet to take care of hypertension and diabetes and dementia and lung disease and all the things that happen when people live long and healthy lives and don't die of AIDS or other things earlier in life. And so what we're focused on now is how do we make that shift from making healthcare delivery almost purely about things like HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria, which were the primary causes of morbidity and mortality in the last 20 years, to diseases of aging, to disease, chronic health diseases, to non-communicable diseases. And our studies around you know, heart disease and HIV are really centered at that. What are the greatest causes of death in the next 20 years in places like Sub-Saharan Africa? And how do we help design a healthcare system to address those? Hmm. So does the treatment of heart conditions like heart disease and hypertension differ for people with HIV and how so? So the, the vast majority of the data we have on how HIV affects heart disease has been collected here in the United States and somewhat in Europe. Most of those studies have suggested that having HIV, even if you're treated and, and, you're, and your disease is well controlled, increases your risk of having things like heart attacks and strokes. And that's because HIV is a chronic infection and it causes inflammation. And we now know pretty well that inflammation is a major driving force behind many chronic, even non-communicable diseases like heart disease, stroke, and cancer. We know less about those relationships in Sub-Saharan Africa, but I think it's very important that we don't make assumptions that just because a pattern of health and disease is seen here in the United States, that it will be replicated in Sub-Saharan Africa. I can give you just one example, something we've looked at in this area recently uh, with our group. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, one of the research institutes I work at in, in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, called the Africa Health Research Institute, um, conducted a, a series of, of tests in people uh, living in rural South Africa where they would measure things like height, weight, and blood pressure. And these individuals are followed longitudinally over many years to try to understand what happens to them. And, and as part of a demographic surveillance, every time someone's born or migrates or dies, that data is collected. So we were able to take that information and ask the question, what did those measurements that were done 10 years ago, how did they predict health? How did they predict whether pe how long people lived? And so we did actually a relatively simple study. We, we, we took the, the body mass index of about 10,000 people that had been measured about 10 years ago. And we asked, how does body mass index predict whether people are gonna live long or not? As you all know, in the United States, this data, these same, same studies have been done over, over decades now. And they've typically showed that once your body mass index is above 25, you're considered overweight. And if it's above 30, you're considered obese. And that's because those same kinds of studies show that people with a BMI over 25 and 30 have a higher risk of death than people with a BMI less than 25. When we repeated that same exact analysis in South Africa, 
we found that people with a BMI between 30 and 35 actually had the lowest rates of death, much lower than people with a BMI of 18 to 25. That the entire concept of, of body weight and body mass in rural South Africa and how it, how it predicted health seemed completely different than what we find here. And so the, the moral of the story for us is that we can't just collect data in the United States and Europe, particularly amongst you know, people like me. And much of this data comes from Framingham, as you might know, not too far from here. That, that's, a, that's a population of largely white Caucasian Americans. Those data are not gonna apply in many ways to people living in Sub-Saharan Africa. And our research program is trying to say, let's collect this data locally, regionally with our partners and country to understand what are the determinants of health locally and how do you design a, a healthcare system in response to those local determinants of health. Hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about the grant that you have um, looking at blood pressure control. Um, this past year has obviously changed a lot for most people um, and clinical and medical research has been disrupted and altered in many ways. Um, tell us a little bit about this uh, grant and what you're looking at there and um, how COVID has kind of changed what you were doing and altered the way you were working uh, this past year. We wrote a grant before COVID-19 that recognized that hypertension care was quite poor uh, in, in much of Sub-Saharan Africa and certainly in rural South Africa where we worked, we've shown that rates of blood pressure control are 20 to 30% amongst all people with high blood pressure. So the grant we wrote said, we, let's, let's do something about this. Let's work with the Department of Health. Let's train nurses. Let's figure out ways to make healthcare delivery for hypertension better. But largely, this grant said, how can we improve clinic-based hypertension care delivery? And in the middle of us receiving this grant, the COVID-19 epidemic happened and everything went on hold. In fact, most of our research went on hold in general, at least for a while. But then when things started to improve and the, and the epidemic has fortunately improved greatly in South Africa, and they're actually just starting to roll out their vaccination program. Uh, and we reapproached the Department of Health who's very interested in, in, in this problem. And they, they do consider hypertension one of their greatest healthcare priorities. You know, in partnership with them, we decided that we'd been thinking about this wrong all along, that, that maybe the best way to, to develop chronic disease care is not by asking people to come to an overburdened clinic and wait in line for four hours and get, uh, you know, the blood pressure checked with a, with a meter that they could have at home very easily, but to say, what can we learn from this epidemic, from depopulating clinics, from improving the convenience of healthcare delivery? And we've basically completely reformulated this project to be almost purely a community healthcare delivered form of blood pressure care where people will either get blood pressure cuffs to measure themselves and a community health worker will come and take those measurements and help transfer them to, to a professional nurse who will interpret them. Or in a slightly more innovative uh, portion of this project, uh, we're proposing to actually use electronic meters which automatically upload the data remotely so no one's involved except for the patient themselves and a remote nurse who can interpret the data and then communicate with them over text message. So. We're hoping to use this opportunity to push the envelope a bit and to say, how can this epidemic really teach us about the most efficient, the most convenient, and the most effective ways of delivering chronic disease care? We've known for some time that, for example, delivering HIV care through community health workers is effective and more convenient and preferred by patients. I think this will be one of the first times where we can test that same model with another chronic disease, which 
is hypertension, which of course, uh, you know, impacts 25% of the entire world's population and potentially will have very far reaching impacts. Hmm. Um, it struck me that this, you know, you're talking about how HIV reshaped the healthcare system in, in some of these countries. And now it's like an HIV care system or it does HIV care well, but doesn't do other treatments for other diseases particularly well. And now we have another epidemic that's reshaping the healthcare system. Um, I guess maybe, could you talk about any parallels that you see between this and HIV, between COVID and the, the two pandemics uh, or the two epidemics and I don't know, just the idea that it takes, you know, a, a, an epidemic to make some of these changes that could benefit people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the glass is half empty perspective here, which is, I think, in many ways, a valid one, is that we don't make change until an emergency makes us make change or until we're forced to make change in, in too many cases. I think, um, you, you know, that both of these epidemics have revealed many weaknesses in our, in our ability to, one, provide healthcare effectively and efficiently, and two, to take care of the most vulnerable groups of people in our, in our planet. And uh, that's been seen time and time again with both of these epidemics. If you look at the groups of people who've been most affected by both the HIV epidemic and the COVID-19 epidemic, you, you'll find the same risk factors. These are people who are lower income, who have less access to healthcare, uh, who are afforded um, you know, less benefits of things like global vaccine supplies, based purely on where they live and the global wealth distribution on our planet. And so I think there are some pretty strong parallels here uh, in terms of um, who these disasters reveal are, are really um, suffering the most. In both cases, uh, but in, in I think particularly for the COVID-19 epidemic, you know, for, for those of us who also worked a bit on the Ebola epidemic and raised, I think, some calls then that our public healthcare infrastructure was really weak, both domestically and globally, and that, that preventative investments will probably pay dividends down the road. Even basic things like affording people access to, to things like diagnostic services uh, and making sure that, that, people, that we have enough healthcare workers that are trained to, to, to you know, diagnose disease and and make referrals for basic care, um, you know, coordinated systems of, of, of laboratory testing, all of these basic public health measures that I think uh, were definitely revealed during the Ebola epidemic of the past decade, uh, I think in largely went unheeded because um, I think what happens is there's a lot of attention that gets paid, um, epidemics wane, memories fade, and it's on, to the, it's on to the next thing. And so I think our public health preparedness um, and the weakness in our public health um, preparedness systems was revealed quite uh, obviously evidently with this, with this latest epidemic. I think the real question we face now is will we learn from it this time? You know, I think there's a reasonable chance that our pace of vaccination allows us some, um, some return to normalcy over the next few months if we do our jobs right and, and we get enough people vaccinated and we don't learn that, you know, variants are going to overtake those vaccines and boosting won't work. There's a number of things that would have to happen to really push us back in the other direction. And we're all hoping that doesn't happen. But 
if we do go on to a, a return to some level of normalcy, will we also remember this? Will we invest in our public health care systems? You know, public state departments of health are, have been massively underfunded in this country, you know, for decades, and, and they're almost non-existent in many foreign countries because they just don't have the funding to support it. That being said, the WHO and others have been asking for years for some basic funding to support, you know, training infrastructure development in, in most of the world. So um, I think that the real question for us will be, how do we respond to this? Will we make the needed changes? Will we be wise enough to make the investments that we now need, need know need to be made, both domestically and globally, so that if, you know, the next one comes, we will be better prepared. Hmm. Um, so just getting back to the grant um, that we were just speaking about. So this is work that is in progress now. Um, and I wonder if you have any hopes for maybe some lasting changes that could come out of this, or, you know, would you like to see remote care or community-based care be more of an option? Um, and maybe, you know, the technology, if you could talk about the technology aspect and how, how that fits in. Yeah, so I think one of the real strengths to this project, which one makes it more exciting, two makes it more challenging, but three, I think positions it to have a lasting impact is that this project is really a partnership with the Department of Health. We are, we have on our leadership committee, we have uh, this, you know, leaders on the Department of Health who are also advising the Department of Health at the same time about how to design the non-communicable disease response program. And uh, they, every step of the way, every time we edit our proposal or protocol, it, it goes through them and they, and they help weigh in about, is this feasible? Is this something the Department of Health will adopt if it's going to be successful? And so it's a longer process. It's much, it's much harder, you know, from a logistics perspective than just going out and doing a study, you know, recruiting people and, and testing hypothesis. But this painstaking process where we make sure that we're getting buy-in from our local partners and the people who eventually would adopt this system, if it's successful, I think and hope will give us the chance to say, listen, we accomplished our goals if we do. This did work or it didn't. And this should be the response. And so I think we're, we're in a position where if we do show something that's effective, our partners will be able to have the confidence to move it forward. On a related note, we're, we're actually using an implementation science framework to do this study. So as opposed to it just being a pure clinical trial, which, which is main goal is typically to say, does this drug work in a vacuum? You know, in a, in a very well um, you know, designed setting that, that maybe every patient's being followed every day and, and you have good you have good oversight of, of every last thing that, that takes place. We're doing these, you know, within the public sector, we're evaluating not just whether it works, but, you know, interviewing nurses and patients about their experiences with the devices, what's working, what's not working. We're doing a costing and cost effectiveness analysis. So ultimately we can advise the minister of finance, is this cost effective? So if it works, so what? But how much is it going to cost per patient to reduce blood pressure, you know, to, 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 to achieve blood pressure control? Uh, you know, to eventually save lives because of reductions in heart attacks and strokes. So uh, we're using a framework here that we hope will be able to be used, not just to say, does is drug A better than drug B, but does this program ultimately represent a sustainable intervention in the public sector? So I think that is our goal. And we do hope that whatever we learn from this, whether it works or it doesn't, that it will be directly relatable uh, to our partners. 
In terms of the technology, you know, we are in the midst of, of developing technology. We are, uh, we have some partners in South Africa, um, a company that actually makes mobile health applications and has been working with the Department of Health in a different province uh, to develop actually childcare and maternal care programs that allow community health workers to collect data and report that data in real time to the Department of Health. And so we're using them as uh, partnering with them to help develop a very similar application, uh, but this time really focusing solely on blood pressure control, which we're using essentially as a proof of principle that this chronic disease method will work, but with the idea that maybe it would be expanded to others in the future. So uh, we're hoping, you know, our, our current goal is to have, you know, various um, elements of the study. One would be kind of what we're calling a low-tech innovation intervention, where really people just get regular blood pressure cuffs at their home. We don't use many, much fancy technology, but community health workers still involved. And then, as I mentioned, a high-tech version of this, where the, the measurements are actually transmitted in real time, uh, you know, using a cell phone technology to nurses who can review it without the need for additional visits. Uh, both of those um, strategies have risks and benefits to them. You know, technology is not perfect, especially in rural areas. Um, you know, the need for multiple visits by community health workers is not perfect in rural areas. And so we're trying to understand the trade-offs between these various strategies and hopefully find one that really works both for the patient and for the healthcare system. Hmm. Could you see a a scenario where both of those approaches have benefits for different uh, areas or groups, and maybe there's sort of a, um, you know, when you're proposing it to the the health ministry, saying, you know, look, for this area, we found that blood pressure cuffs and a visit was really effective, but in the cities, the, you know, transmitting over the cell network was was more effective. Um, and maybe having like, a yeah, like either or depending where you live kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think there's almost, there's nuance to every, every class, you know, research study, once you delve into the data, I think, um, there, you know, you can imagine a scenario where people with hypertension who also have maybe a, a child or a younger person in their home who can help them with the technology elements, <laughs> uh, would be a reason why that there'd be certain groups of people that would do better with high tech. Uh, whereas, as you mentioned, maybe distance to clinic, if you live very close to a community health worker and it's not that very hard for them to get to your house, maybe they, they would benefit. And it, it's all these issues and, and of course costs. So, so maybe they're similar or even equivalent, but one of them ends up becoming more cost effective than the other. And you can say, well, the technology is going to be more expensive, but maybe not because if it decreases healthcare visitation, it actually may decrease health resource costs. So it's difficult to know exactly which one would work and which one wouldn't. Uh, and for what reasons, but we're collecting all these process measures in the, in the, you know, these things in the middle, how many visits were made, you know, how many times was, was a pharmacist involved? How many times did someone's battery die? How many times were they not able to get a cell connection and therefore they couldn't transmit? All of those intermediate steps, we're collecting that data as part of our protocol to try to help understand why does it work? Why doesn't it work? And ultimately help clarify, you know, are there certain groups of people that would benefit from one versus the other? I will say that Ultimately, uh, in places like South Africa, in, in many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, there tends to be a public health approach, which is that differentiated care where everyone, certain people get certain things is not always easy to deliver, especially in, in rural resource limited settings. And uh, they often follow a relatively standard guideline. And so, you know, there are some sometimes difficult decisions to be made because you can't always have two or three different strategies. But our, our hope is that we're, we're able to clarify you know, what is the best strategy? And if there are reasons that they're better for some people that versus others, 
you know, let the policymakers decide the best way to proceed. It's interesting the what you just said, let the policymakers decide how to proceed. How do you feel once you have your study, you've collected your data, you've drawn your conclusions, you deliver it, and then you kind of wait and see what happens? What's, what's that like? Well, I, I, I think one of the most important responsibilities of scientists is to communicate their findings uh, appropriately, accurately, um, in an unbiased fashion, um, and to be engaged in policy decisions, um, but, but truly uh, to, to allow policymakers the opportunity to ask questions, get the, get the answers right, and make those decisions. Um, I think, you know, I, scientists, um, I think, have a really important responsibility to get, to get it right, uh, to express limitations, to express, you know, confidence intervals, and to say, you know, this is the range of, of, of results that we found. And this is how to interpret them. And, and this is how, you know, not to interpret them and, and uh, to, to make sure that information is out there. But I do think there is a line there, you know, uh, and that that line exists when, you know, I as a scientist am not the person at the end of the day has to say, we're going to put our money down and spend, you know, X billion dollars to invest in this. Uh, my job is to say, what would happen if you did that? And what's the alternative result if you don't? but not necessarily to say you should or you shouldn't. Um, and so I think we are uh, you know, pretty heavily engaged with our partners in trying to help interpret data as uh, in an unbiased way as, as possible. But I think we recognize um, the, you know, the limitations of our role there. And, and it is to advise um, and to be clear and transparent and to you know, recognize limitations, but, but not to overstep those bounds. Well, Dr. Seidner, uh, it was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash Think Research.